The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello and welcome to From the Consultant's Desk, where we discuss asset allocation trends in financial advisor portfolios analyzed by Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. I'm Kevin McCullough, one of the consultants from the Portfolio Analysis and Consulting Team. I'm joined by my colleague, Mark Santolo, and today we're going to talk about some of the developments we've been seeing in the private equity space. And there's really three things I think you should know. First, private equity and public equity are interconnected. So even if you aren't invested in private markets at all, you are still impacted by the interplay with the public equity side, particularly in the U.S. growth space. So we'll talk a little bit about private companies going public and public companies going private. Second thing, the decision to include private equity in your portfolio has implications about how you build the rest of your portfolio. We can talk about some of those considerations as well. And finally, you're seeing what's traditionally an institutional asset class go down market. Financial advisors are starting to hear more about this from alternatives managers, and we think this might very well be a trend you see in financial advisor portfolios over the next several years. Yes, uh, setting the table a little bit, Mark, I know that in 2021, we really saw a record year in terms of the activity in private markets. Uh, obviously, you know, public equities have experienced something of a significant correction in, in a really volatile market environment this year. Uh, how has that been impacting the situation on the private side? You've really seen activity fall off a cliff this year. Um, several deals outright fell apart. You had Chobani originally filed for an IPO in November of 2021. That ended up getting canceled in September of this year. You had SeatGeek sign a SPAC agreement in October of 2021. That deal got terminated in June. Uh, they ended up raising another round of private capital instead. And one interesting thing that's happened in, in China, which is another big uh, market for, uh, for IPOs, is there's a backlog that dates back even further um, with regulatory concerns that really started late in 2021. You had companies potentially waiting to go IPO, and then this year they run into a really challenging return environment, so perhaps an even bigger backlog over in, in China. Volume-wise, um, U.S. IPO volumes are actually down 96% year over year, at least through the end of August. So we've definitely seen a big drop off uh, versus 2021. That's a pretty extreme number down 96%, but you know, I think that makes intuitive sense. This is you know, far from an advantageous time for most companies to go public when, when risk appetite is so poor and you can imagine the you know, reception for markets probably isn't as strong as they would like. Very true. So you know, we just talked about the lack of private companies going public. Uh, that would obviously mean we have private companies staying private. And we've spoken about this on this podcast before about unicorns. And those are privately held startup companies valued over a billion dollars. Um, we've got almost 1,200 of those today. This is a number that, as we've said before, has increased substantially over the past few years. 200 were added just in the first half of 2022 alone. And this is happening, obviously, as public markets are, are selling off sharply. Um, and you're getting a large number of really sizable companies out there on the private side. So this was once, you know, maybe considered a micro cap asset class. It's now made up of companies across the spectrum. You've got small, mid, even large cap based on valuation levels. These are names that you've heard of like Instacart, SpaceX, SeatGeek, and Reddit. Yeah, Mark, would it be would it be fair to say that private companies are in this environment, or, or at least recently, staying private longer than they have historically. 
it would. We looked at some data that showed back in 1999, the average age of technology companies that went public was four and a half years. In 2020, it had risen to 12 years. So I think companies are realizing there's benefits to operational costs, compliance disclosures, avoiding the pressures of the quarterly reporting cycle as long as possible. And there's also the obvious benefit of strategically timing the IPO to try to maximize your valuation. And of course, we also have the opposite side of, of public companies going private. So on the buyout side, to set the stage, you had buyout funds sitting on over 800 billion in dry powder at the end of 2021. Now in 2022, as everyone knows, we've had a sell-off in U.S. stocks You know, to start the year. That was particularly painful in, in growth stocks and, and in particular technology. And so the private equity response was somewhat of a rush to buy and delist um, public equity names and technology, particularly software, but other sectors as well. You even had some interesting comments from Kathy Wood, the CEO and founder of, of ARC, that she viewed companies trading at low valuations getting bought out as a is the biggest risk to her firm. Um, she said that they'll fight tooth and nail against companies trying to pluck um, some of these long-term growth uh, stories at bargain basement prices. Yeah, on, on the topic of valuations, maybe let's uh, switch gears for a bit and you know just discuss some of the portfolio implications of investing in private equity. Uh, you know, again, as we alluded to earlier, public equities have really seen a major multiple re-rating to the downside this year. Uh, have we seen similar corrections or, or write-downs of the valuations on, on the private side of equities? We've really seen this a lot this year um, with the denominator effect taking hold among investors that have private market allocations. And so what the denominator effect would say is that you've got a target allocation to an asset class, in this case, private equity, where the returns have held up a lot more than the rest of the portfolio. So it becomes a bigger allocation of a declining base. So just for an example, someone with a 10% allocation to private equity, even if those returns are flat, if everything else is falling, that could have easily become, you know, 11 and a half, 12% of, of an allocation, which maybe is still within their target range, but could be above as well. And that's going to be even more acute if you have higher allocations, or in situations where your, your private managers have delivered a ton of alpha, or if you've had to sell some of your liquid assets to meet your obligations. Yeah, sp speaking of alpha, from a manager divergence standpoint, I'd also point out that you know private equity behaves a lot like some other alternative asset classes where this gap between the top and bottom performers in any given period can be pretty extreme and, and pretty wide between those. So alpha, you know, certainly I would say is the driver of performance in private markets, whereas in public markets, you tend to get beta, you know, driving a lot more of that return. Yeah, when you look at historical returns, you can easily support an illiquidity premium of three, if not 4% or more. Um, and that's looking at pooled returns from, from different private equity managers that are, that are out there as reported by Cambridge Associates, and there are others as well. Um, so three to 4% of an illiquidity premium, but, that's the average. You're going to have a massive difference between the top quartile managers and the bottom quartile managers. We looked at the delta between those exact figures and for private equity over a 10 year period of time, there was a 20% gap. So, you know, you had like a 30% um, average return among top quartile managers compared to a 10% return among bottom quartile managers. Compare that to the public side, it's only about you know, five to 7%. So a massive difference on the private side where, 
yes, you can get that illiquidity premium, but manager selection is paramount and you need to be with really high quality managers to feel confident that you're going to achieve that. Yeah, makes sense. It, it, the market environment comes up pretty frequently when discussing allocation to private equities. Would you say, Mark, are there particular opportunities for investing in private equities in, in a down market or uh, you know, a, a recessionary environment, which is obviously, you know, you know, the possibility of recessions getting a lot of press these days. Yeah, I think what's important is a strong market when you're trying to exit your investments, not when you're trying to enter the, the, the investment. So it doesn't usually make sense to try to time your commitment pace um, with private equity. Going back and looking at historical returns, obviously we've got the tech bubble um, was a major uh, equity correction. And then we had the GFC back in 2008, 2009, um, those were not the vintages that you would have wanted to avoid in retrospect. It was 1999, you know, perhaps 2006, a couple of years before uh, the recessions. Those are the vintages where um, money was being put to work when the market was most challenged. Um, I'd say investing in a recession could actually benefit the portfolio. You're, you're definitely, you know, taking that on at the cost of, of reduced liquidity. Um, but as we've seen, um, you know, you can kind of get uh, decent sized returns even in those vintage years that you think would be would be challenged. What I think is different this year, even though equity markets are, are down and we're not in a recession just yet, um, but you want ideally a broad opportunity set of deals for choose from. And that's what's not really been happening this year, as we've said. Yeah, that makes sense from an exposure standpoint. You know, in, in private equity, you're often getting this small to mid cap or obviously sometimes large these days based on uh, you know what we highlighted earlier. Uh, but but, you know, generally you're getting this skew that's maybe a small mid cap growth style exposure uh, on the public side. It, it's interesting that you see something of a gap in passive benchmarks in terms of getting similar exposure to some of these early stage, uh, maybe high growth companies. Yeah, so knowing that unicorns have been staying private longer, we actually went back and looked at the top 10 unicorns from five years ago. And of those 10, two were still unicorns today. One was acquired by a comp another company and seven had gone public. But interestingly enough, none of those seven were in the S&P 500 or even the S&P 1500. All seven were a part of the Russell 1000 though. So uh, a couple takeaways. So the S&P has got a more stringent inclusion criteria that looks at you know, how long you've been a public company as well as how profitable you've been while Russell's more inclusive. So if you're thinking about investing passively, if you're in the S&P, you're going to be in this, you know, more inclusive uh, opportunity set. If you're in the Russell, you're definitely getting a broader set of exposures, but at the cost of some noise around rebalancing dates. We saw that earlier this year, back in June, there was a Russell rebalance and um, a, a handful of names switched uh, in and out of, of, of the index. We think maybe the the best way to play it uh, for at least a portion of your portfolio is active management. So active management can help get you the early exposure to those companies before they're picked up in the benchmarks inclusion criteria, whether that's the Russell sort of quickly or the S&P down the road. And I think the important implication sort of either way is that we're definitely seeing more value creation on the uh, private side than you would have seen back in, say, 1999. Um, whether that's going to be something that you access with private equity or access through active management on the equity side, we definitely think it's something that you want to be aware of as you're investing in equities, particularly growth equity. 
Yeah, I'd add that there may be implications for constructing the rest of the portfolio around a private allocation. It, you know, what, like we were talking about before, if your private equity exposures are generally skewing something like small cap U.S. growth, you might want to overweight a space like large cap non-U.S. value for the public side of the portfolio to sort of balance out the, the total portfolio exposures. Uh, you know, you also can't have too much of, you know, a private allocation in, in proportion to the total portfolio, or you really begin to sacrifice that liquidity that you might need in a market downturn, for example. You know, I also think it's safe to say that advisors are probably going to start hearing more about privates from alternatives managers if, if they haven't already. Uh, we've seen plenty of attempts to try to bring, you know, this type of exposure down market to smaller investors. Uh, there's been a 40 Act fund in the space for, for years now. Uh, we've seen some new products come out for qualified purchasers, so, you know, bringing those minimums down. We're even seeing some products that are coming to market with minimums as low as $500 to really make it accessible to the masses. I mean, all of this to me points to broadening access for individual investors. Uh, Mark, do you think there are any concerns here making, you know, those those types of you know, typically investments for more sophisticated investors available on a broader scale? I think there could be, and it ties back to the point that we made earlier about where so much of the return story is in alpha. Um, you know, that's great if you can get access to a really high quality manager that's been able to demonstrate over time that they can deliver positive alpha and, you know, kind of compensate you for that illiquidity that you're taking. But as you go down market and you imagine that more and more asset managers are going to offer something like this. It, it could be concerning. So I think it's still probably something that will be of interest to small institutions and certain high net worth investors. I'd just say that maybe instead of going from, you know, 0% or to 20% or to 30%, maybe it's 5 or 10. I think you can kind of recognize that a lot of the pain that's happened in, in public markets has not happened on the private side. And so staying a little bit more liquid, um, you know, kind of gradually uh, getting that exposure might end up paying off. That concludes our discussion about some of the recent trends we've been seeing in private markets. Please feel free to reach out to us with any questions or comments about portfolio trends or customized insights that are tailored to your specific portfolio. On behalf of the portfolio consulting team at Natixis Investment Managers, thank you for your continued partnership and thanks for listening. Important information. As of October 19, 2022, this material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed may change based on market and other conditions. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, international and emerging markets. Additionally, alternative investments, including managed futures, can involve a higher degree of risk and may not be suitable for all investors. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. Alpha is a measure of the difference between a portfolio's actual returns and its expected performance. Given its level of systematic market risk, a positive alpha indicates outperformance and negative alpha indicates underperformance relative to the portfolio's level of systematic risk. Performance data shown represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. References to specific securities or industries should not be considered a recommendation. This document may contain references to copyrights, indexes and trademarks that may not be registered in all jurisdictions. Third-party registrations are the property of their respective owners and are not affiliated with Natixis Investment Managers or any 
of its related or affiliated companies, collectively Natixis. Such third-party owners do not sponsor, endorse or participate in the provision of any Natixis services, funds or other financial products. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. LLC Natixis Advisors, LLC does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decision Natixisiamsolutions.com. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Expiration date, October 31, 2023. Add tracks, 5039660, 1, 1, PA 23, October 2022.